Welcome to the Anglican Church of the Good Shepherd, Pelham, Alabama podcast. So today we find Jesus at the end of a long dialogue that he's been having, really an inquisition that's been happening from the three main power players, three power groups that are in uh, Judaism at this time. And those three main groups that we find are the Herodians, uh, Herodians named after the puppet king Herod, whose family was placed in power by Rome and does not descend from King David. Uh, he's an imposter king, not only set up by the Gentile Romans, but also not from the Davidic line. And the Herodians, to tell you a little bit about them, they could care less really about the details of God's revelation, about how do you apply the, the rules of the Old Covenant. They're more concerned about protecting their power, their place, their stature. Now, the second group that Jesus is dealing with here in the temple are that of the Pharisees. The Pharisees, the ones that were probably most well-known to us who've read and heard the Scripture, they have little in common with the Herodians, and they have very little in common with the third group, the Sadducees. Because while the Herodians and the Sadducees, they have a vested interest in keeping the peace with Rome, keeping things as is, keeping their power. The Pharisees are strict adherents of the Torah, the law of God, that we now commonly refer to as the Old Covenant or the Old Testament. Now the Pharisees, out of their zeal for abiding by the commandments of God, they have this desire to observe the law as strictly and specifically as possible. And so they end up adding man-made laws in order to try to follow the law of God. And that's where we typically see them run into trouble with Jesus. Now finally, last but not least, the third group are the Sadducees. The Sadducees, they controlled the Sanhedrin, which is the powerful religious ruling council of the Jewish religion at this time. So each of these three groups, you know, why am I going through this with you? I want to give you some background, some context of where we find Jesus today. In each of these three groups, the Herodians, the Pharisees, and the Sadducees, they're going to take a stab at trying to entrap Jesus while he's teaching in the temple of God in Matthew 22. And each one of these groups will be sorely disappointed when Jesus ends up upstaging them. Now, the first attack, it's outside of today's gospel reading, but it's there in Matthew 22. That first attack comes from technically both the Herodians and the Pharisees. They gang up. These are two unlikely allies. Like I just mentioned, Herodians want to keep power. They support a false king, a puppet king. And the Pharisees want nothing to do with this false king. So why are they teaming up? Why are they allying together? One of them represents compromise with the Gentile pagan Romans. And the other represents an overzealous desire for purity and strict Torah observance. And yet they unite together in Matthew twenty-two fifteen, When they ask Jesus, is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? We've all probably heard this at some moment. It's a clever trap. And the two get together because it looks like it's impossible for Jesus to answer this without offending one or the other party, and probably without getting himself either stoned by the public or crucified on a cross. But it's not yet Jesus' time. The question that they're really asking him about paying taxes is, do you, you know, this potential Messiah, this would-be Messiah, do you claim that you are the heir to David's throne? 
And if you do, and you say, yes, pay the tax, then you demonstrate that really you're submitting to Rome. You're submitting to the Gentile nation. That's not the Messiah we expect. You're not the true king of Israel. If you say yes to pay the tax, it'll draw the ire of the Pharisees and most of the people of God who are being oppressed by Rome, oppressed by tax collectors. But then if Jesus answers no, don't pay the tax, refuse to pay the tax, they have no claims over Israel, Israel is God's nation, then he infuriates the Herodians. And more importantly, he infuriates the Romans. And they can go and they can say, look, Jesus is a revolutionary. He's inciting a tax revolt, a tax rebellion. But then Jesus, of course, he turns the question on his head. And he asks them, show me a coin. And they do. And then Jesus asks, well, whose image is born by this coin? Why, it's Caesar's, they answer. And then Jesus tells them, well, then give to Caesar what is Caesar's. And give to God what is God. And both parties, Matthew records, marvel at this response. At Jesus' insight. And they leave. Now the very same day, so you have this context, these three attacks all on the same day in the temple. In Matthew twenty-two twenty-three, the Sadducees come to test Jesus. And they come up with a scenario that's rooted in the Mosaic Law. For in the Mosaic Law, if a man dies... Then if he has a brother, that brother can marry his widow, taking care of the widow, keeping the property in the family line. And so the Sadducees create a scenario based upon this law. All right, we have this law. I'm going to give you a scenario, Jesus. All right, there, there's seven brothers. First one's married to this wife. He dies. She's a widow. Second brother takes his wife. He dies. And then third brother, and so on and so on. Seven times, just to really make it as outlandish as possible, but nevertheless possible. And so the Sadducees say, all right, Jesus, we don't believe in the resurrection. We don't think there is resurrection in the Torah, in the first five books of the Bible, the five books of Moses. So we're going to ask you this question. Um, who is this woman going to be married to in the resurrection that you proclaim, Jesus? She had seven husbands over the course of her life. Are you going to say that she's going to have seven husbands in the resurrection when they're all raised from the dead? Therefore, are you going to say that there's polygamy in the kingdom of heaven? But Jesus flips the script on the Sadducees, and he accuses them bluntly, outright. This isn't the meek Jesus that the world likes to paint and some in the church like to believe in. Jesus says this, You are wrong, because you know neither the scriptures, you know neither the scriptures, nor the power of God. And this statement shows just how important and how crucial the scriptures are. After all, Jesus is the one who wrote them as the living word of God. And therefore, it should not surprise us that Jesus relies on. And then to answer the Sadducees, he quotes from the scriptures. Not just now, but so regularly when he's teaching and reasoning with others. It's an example, church, for us to emulate. The master relies upon the scriptures. He even tells us in the Gospel of John, he says, the scriptures cannot be broken. The scriptures cannot be broken. Do you believe that? The scriptures cannot be broken. Or let me rephrase the question. Do you trust in Jesus? If you admit to yourselves that I've got a little trouble with some things in scripture, I don't know about that. Do you trust in Jesus? If the answer is yes, then trust in him 
who inspired the scriptures, who quoted from the scriptures regularly in his ministry. Because what Jesus does is he turns to Exodus 3, verse 6, and he quotes from it to refute the Sadducees, who don't believe that there is a resurrection. And what does Jesus do? He points out that long after Father Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are long dead, God reveals himself to Moses. And he does so through that burning bush. And what does God say through that burning bush? I am the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and Jacob. And then Jesus points out to the Sadducees, God is the God of the living, not the dead. Implying that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are not truly gone forever in death. That Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob will not be left in Sheol, in Hades, in the grave, but that they shall rise again because God is the God of the living and not of the dead. And I lay all this out. There's so much context I'm bringing you to. And I tell you this because here we are now in the gospel lesson. We have Jesus still in his temple. It's the same day. He's faced two challenges so far. The Herodians have tried to set up Jesus on a topic that's near and dear to them, paying taxes and keeping us in charge. And they struck out. The Sadducees have tested Jesus on their pet doctrine, the resurrection, or their lack of belief in the resurrection. And they struck out. And now we find Jesus still in his temple, in God's temple. And in Matthew twenty-two thirty-four, 34, we're going to pick it up with Jesus facing one more challenge, this time from the Pharisees. And where we learn in verse 34, the Pharisees literally are gathered together in this like unholy huddle in the corner of the temple. It's like watching a football play, an old huddle. They're not doing... You know, no huddle offense. They're like, we're huddled back up. All right, all right. Herodians have struck out. Sadducees have struck out. What are we going to do? What can we come up with to get Jesus this time? They're plotting. We can't go this route. They tried that. We, we can't go that way. They, they tried that one too. What can we say? And verse 35 tells us that one of the scribes is probably translated that one of the lawyers because they know the Mosaic Covenant backwards and forwards have memorized it. They step forward, and this scribe, this lawyer who knows the covenant of God, what we would call the Old Testament, like the back of his hand, steps forward and asks Jesus a question. Now, the question is a good question. It's a great question to ask. He says, Rabbi, or teacher, which is the greatest commandment? Here we are with the law of God. Which is the greatest commandment? But what we hear in Matthew's gospel, what Matthew records for us is that that question, a good question, is not sincerely asked, but is asked, quote, to test him, to test Jesus. And now let's, let's remember who are the Pharisees. They obsess over the law. They believe they find their salvation through the law, through the abiding by the law. But they fail to see that the law condemns, as Paul illustrates, as Paul points out, that the law just shows us our sin. And that it was even given, that Mosaic Covenant, to the people of God after the sin of the Israelites. The law condemns. The law exposes. The law, at its best, is revealing God's perfect standard of holiness while holding up a mirror to our own soul and showing that 
we lack the righteousness that God demands. That though God commands us in the Old Covenant, be holy as I am holy. That we can't meet that righteousness. But now the righteousness of God, Jesus Christ, he answers the question posed to him by quoting, you guessed it, the scriptures. Specifically, he quotes from Deuteronomy 6, verse 5. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your mind, with all your soul. This is the greatest commandment. It's a summary of the first four out of ten commandments. The four commandments that point towards serving God and loving God. And then Jesus goes one step forward. He answers a question not even asked. He says that the second greatest commandment, the second greatest commandment, is like it. And then he quotes from Leviticus 19.18. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And so those last six commandments of the Ten Commandments, which deal with how we treat one another, our neighbor, is summed up in that succinct statement. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And then Jesus explains that it's on these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. All the Old Testament, the Old Covenant, summed up in those two sentences. But the Pharisees don't seem to realize that our hearts are so far from God our image and our likeness so marred from the sins in the garden, the sins we heap upon to this day, that we cannot even keep these two simple commands from God. We're rife with sin. We're run through with death, with corruption. Our slavery is to our own desires, our own passions, to our own fleshliness. And Satan, he just drags us into chains and shale, the place of the dead. Pharisees don't realize that the Messiah, the Christ that we need, is just as much a savior as a king. Just as much a king as a great high priest. But the Pharisees are too infatuated with the law of God itself that they don't see the need, their desire, their hope that they yearn for, for good news, for gospel. Instead, it's all law and no gospel. But then Jesus steps in in verse 41, and he delivers the gospel. He turns the tables on the gathered Pharisees around him, and he asks them a question. What do you think about the anointed one? What do you think about the Christ, the Messiah? Whose son is he? And remember the Christ English way of taking that Greek word for anointed, but it means anointed one. Who do we anoint? We anoint kings. So when Jesus asks, what do you think about the anointed one, the Christ? What do you think about the one who is to be born? Whose son is he? And of course, the Pharisees are thinking, well, this is a toss-up. What do we think about the Christ, the anointed one? Well, He's the son of David. 
In other words, he's the heir to the throne of David. He'll be the rightful king when he appears. And Jesus doesn't disagree. The Pharisees answer correctly. But then he turns back to Scripture. And Jesus pulls up for us Psalm 110.1. And in most of your Bibles, in Psalm 110.1, it'll note something. The Lord, the first Lord, because it says Lord twice. The first Lord is in small capital letters. And it does this because that Lord is a replacement, a substitute for God's divine name. For Yahweh, I am who I am. I will be who I will be. I am the existing one. So when you read Psalm 110.1, which Jesus is quoting to the Pharisees, it's literally saying that Yahweh said to my Lord. And so the puzzle that Jesus is getting at is if King David, who rules the kingdom, says in his psalm and says to himself that God said to my Lord, who is this my Lord that David is subject to in addition to God? Or Jesus asked in Matthew twenty two forty five, if David calls him Lord, how is he his son? In other words, how can the anointed one, the Messiah, the Christ, be both David's Lord and his sovereign and also be David's descendant? The Pharisees are utterly stumped. This is quite a puzzle that Jesus is bringing out. And in verse 46, it even shows how stumped they were. Because it says, quote, no one was able to, uh, excuse me, no one was able to answer Jesus a word. And from that day on, they didn't even dare to ask him any more questions. The Pharisees who know the scriptures so well, or at least they thought they knew their scriptures so well, but then the word of God himself appears and stumps them with the very words that the Spirit of God inspired Moses and the prophets and David, in this case, to write. And here's the gospel staring the Pharisees in the face, and they still miss him. Jesus' question about how the Messiah could be both David's son and his Lord reveals to us that Messiah, Christ, the anointed one, is more than a human king. He's a human king and he's Lord of lords, king of kings. He's born years after David's death, and yet he's somehow already alive during David's day because David calls him Lord. In other words, Jesus is telling the Pharisees and telling us today that Christ, Messiah, the Anointed One, is eternal and is David's son. The only eternal one is God. Jesus is revealing himself as son of man and son of God. Jesus is telling his listeners there in God's temple, in his very own temple, that Christ is God incarnate and David's son in the flesh. And church, we need Christ to be both. We need Jesus to be both. That's the gospel, friends. It's what we're learning in Sunday school by going through St. Athanasius on the incarnation. That Jesus indeed is the eternal one. Jesus indeed is David's Lord and our Lord. He is David's son and the true king of heaven and earth. And if we trusted the scriptures just half as much as Jesus does, we would see this and the spirit would fill us even more with trust in God's grace, with rest, with Sabbath and God's promises and with the gospel, with the good news for our lives and for the lives of others. But we live in confusing times, and often, 
for honest with ourselves, we start to scratch the itch of the world's sovereign call to us. We doubt the word of God, maybe not out loud, but in our hearts we fell and we flounder. We worry about whether or not the scripture is true instead of relying upon the one who is the embodiment of truth, who says that I am the way, the truth, and the life. And if we trust Jesus as our Lord, as David did, as David confessed in Psalm 110.1, then we should trust his words. When Jesus says about the scriptures themselves, he says that scripture cannot be broken. He says, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interprets to them all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. Or as he says in John 5, 39, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me. And what do we see when Jesus is alone in the wilderness? There in Matthew 5, when he's thirsty, he's hungry, he's facing Satan's trials and temptations for 40 days. What does Jesus do? He refutes and he rebuts Satan every time by quoting from the scriptures. Church, do not obscure the scriptures. Don't excuse the scriptures. Don't weaken them and try to explain the scriptures away. Trust the scriptures, as Jesus trusts them, as you trust Jesus, trust in the scriptures. Remember that the same word of God himself who died on your cross for your sins is the same word of God who breathed out and inspired the written scriptures with the power of the Holy Spirit who wrote them. For as Jesus cites to the scripture in Psalms 110 today, he does so to show you his eternal unity with God the Father and God the Holy Spirit, while also simultaneously being the new Adam, the new human, the true king who sits on David's throne, whose kingdom will have no end. So take away with you today that if you trust in our Lord, then trust in his written word as well. Come to know Jesus even more day by day by reading the scriptures and seeing Jesus there. It's why he's gifted us the written word for us. What Jesus is doing is raising our expectations in today's gospel. He tells the Pharisees that the Messiah, that the Messiah that they await is so much more than a son of Adam, but is the new Adam. And that God is fulfilling his own promise right there from Genesis 3.15 to bruise the serpent once and for all. And Jesus' mastery of the scriptures, that should push us to follow his example. To pray for the Spirit, give me, O Lord, the desire to read the scriptures. Because I know how it is. You crack this book open and all desire leaves you to dive into it. You crack this book open and it can be in the middle of the day after your fourth cup of coffee and the yawn comes out. You break open the scriptures and the distraction, all hell breaks loose, sometimes quite literally. The phone starts going off. People start coming to you. You get a phone call. Things start happening. But that's the struggle and that's the fight that we face because you have been bought by Jesus Christ. You no longer are in slavery to Satan through your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. But what can Satan do if he can't snatch you away? He's going to make you ineffective. 
He's going to get in your way because he doesn't want you to know the scriptures as well as Christ does. He doesn't want you to know Christ even better through the scriptures because he doesn't want you to be impactful and effective and an ambassador for Jesus Christ when you walk out these doors. Satan and this culture and this world is perfectly fine with keeping this to yourself. Reading it just at home, just keeping your religion on Sundays. But God forbid if we actually live what Christ professes outside these doors. And that's a mild, mild form of persecution and spiritual warfare that we face. So Christian, be emboldened to go out there because the same people who don't want to hear it are the exact ones who are called to hear it, are the exact ones that God is putting in your life. Lord, they're too difficult. You know, Lord, they'll never listen. Lord, they don't want to have Scripture thrown on them. They certainly don't. Don't go by throwing Scripture. Go by being Christ where you go. Go by engaging in a relationship, not for an ulterior motive, because God loves them just as He loved you so much that He gave His only begotten Son. And therefore, live these Scriptures so that when someone needs a word from the Lord, you can give them the word from the Lord. Let us go from here. Let us depart from here, O church. And let's go after. Let's follow after Jesus, our maker. And let us know these scriptures. Because Jesus has confronted the Herodians, the Sadducees, the Pharisees, Rome, and Satan, all with the scriptures. And so let us raise our expectations in trusting in Jesus. Let us raise our expectations in trusting in Christ. Let us raise our expectations in who Jesus is, that he is fully God and fully man. And let us raise our expectations and trust that the Spirit of God that he gave us in faith is a living witness that lives within us and that he will illuminate us when the time comes so that we may know his words better, that we may be able to recite his words so that we may be equipped for telling good news, gospel, to a world that is in darkness. And so just the Psalm 110.1 raises our expectations today as to who Christ is. Let us raise our own expectations in serving the Messiah by hearing, by reading, by learning, and by inwardly digesting scripture daily. Amen. Thank you for tuning in and listening to the podcast for this week. We're expanding our ministries at Church of the Good Shepherd and expanding our space as well in order to better accommodate our growing church family and also to minister to our children. If you feel led to give, please feel free to text the word SHARE to 1-888-364-GIVE. Or additionally, visit us at www.goodshepherdacna.com and go over to the menu item listed Donate to Donate Online. We appreciate any help that you can give, and we hope to see you soon. Come visit us on Sundays at 9 a.m. for Bible study and at 10.30 a.m. for Sunday worship. God bless.